We all know about King's speech before the Lincoln Memorial in August of 1963, where he talked about a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. But Malcolm X had a different interpretation of the American experience as far as blacks were concerned. He remarked, I don't see an American dream. I see an American nightmare. He went on to say that he was not an American. He said, I'm one of the 22 million black people who are the victims of Americanism. How is it that King and X could have such diametrically opposed interpretations of the black experience in America? When most people think of the civil rights movement in America, they think of Martin Luther King Jr., and especially his I Have a Dream speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This speech secured his fame as the leading spokesman for nonviolent mass protest in the 1960s. But the movement achieved its greatest results, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, due to competing strategies and the agendas of diverse individuals, diverse black individuals. Even black Americans, the primary beneficiaries of this landmark legislation, did not agree on the tactics that should be used to secure greater protection of civil and political rights for blacks. So let's begin with Martin Luther King Jr., and then we'll look at the diagnosis and solution of Malcolm X. King first came to national prominence through his leadership of the Montgomery bus boycott of 1955 and 56. This helped desegregate public transportation in Montgomery, Alabama. He was elected unanimously the president of the Montgomery Improvement Association. He was a gifted preacher, committed pacifist, and thought that nonviolent direct action against racial segregation provided the best means of securing the full integration of blacks into the mainstream of American life. As he wrote in his famous letter from a Birmingham jail, I have consistently preached that nonviolence demands that the means we used must be as pure as the ends we seek. I think this concern for means and ends is crucial to understanding King's political activism and thought. So if you know anything about the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s, it probably has something to do, as I said, with Martin Luther King. Uh, most likely you will have seen the I Have a Dream speech, which closes with that famous last line, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty we are free at last. Uh, next to his I Have a Dream speech, King's most famous writing is his letter from a Birmingham jail. It's a lengthy essay, I think a little more than 7,000 words, that he actually began writing while he was in solitary confinement over Easter weekend in April of 1963. King eventually turned this essay into a publication that was part of a public relations strategy to bring national attention to the struggle for civil rights in the South. The Birmingham campaign of March and April of 1963 followed a less successful protest the previous year in Albany, Georgia. 
Albany Police Chief Lori Pritchett did not want to draw media attention to the Albany protests led by King and local citizens, and so he actually dispersed jailed protesters to surrounding jails to avoid overcrowding. And he had local city officials post bail for King anytime he got arrested. So King eventually left Albany in August of 1962 when the protest movement stalled for months and when the city reneged on its promise to desegregate bus and train stations. So discouraged by the movement's uh, inability to provide an answer to these problems and actually to provoke a reaction that would precipitate change, King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the SCLC, decided to accept an invitation from Birmingham, an activist there, the Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, to agitate for change there. And so they devised a new strategy. They called it Project C for confrontation. Birmingham was Alabama's largest city, but its 40% black population suffered stark inequities in education, employment, and income. In 1961, when Freedom Riders were mobbed in the city bus uh, terminal, Birmingham drew unwelcome national attention. Moreover, recent years saw so many bombings in black neighborhoods that went unsolved that the city earned the name Bombingham. In 1962, Birmingham even closed public parks, playgrounds, swimming pools, golf courses to avoid federal court orders to desegregate. Nevertheless, the fight to hold on to segregationist practices began to wear on some whites. The question remained how best to address the concerns of local black citizens. When eight white clergymen, Protestant, Catholic, and Jewish, learned of King's plans to stage mass protests in Birmingham over the Easter weekend in 1963, they published a statement voicing disagreement with King's attempt to reform the segregated city. It appeared in Birmingham News on Good Friday, the very day King was jailed for violating a court injunction against marching. The white clergyman complained that local black citizens were being, quote, directed and led in part by outsiders, end quote, to engage in demonstrations that they considered unwise and untimely. The prudence of the civil rights movement's um, actions in Birmingham was also called into question by local merchants who believed that the new city government and mayor, they had just had an election, replacing the staunch segregationist Eugene Bull Connor, he was a commissioner of public safety, there's irony for you, he was the one who employed fire hoses and police dogs against protesters, many of whom were high school and college students. They thought that this new election and this new city government would offer a new opportunity to address black concerns. Even the Justice Department under President John F. Kennedy urged King to leave Birmingham. Clergymen advised locals to follow the principles of law and order and common sense and to engage in patient negotiation and, if necessary, seek redress in the courts. They called street protests and economic boycotts extreme measures and thus saw them as imprudent means of redressing grievances. Last, he said, if peaceful protests actually sparked hatred and riots and violence, they would hold the protesters responsible for the violence that followed. In spite of the court injunction, King went ahead with the protest march on Good Friday and was promptly arrested. 
along with his close friend and fellow Baptist preacher, Ralph Abernathy, and 52 other protesters. King served his jail sentence in solitary confinement, but soon began reading press reports of the Birmingham campaign in newspapers that were smuggled into the cell by his lawyer. Both local and national media expressed greater optimism for reform from the new city government and less sympathy for King and his nonviolent direct action campaign. But what irked King most was the criticism from these Birmingham clergymen, fellow members of the cloth, most of whom had actually criticized Governor George Wallace's inauguration proclamation where he said, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. So King began to write using the margins of the Birmingham News. His reply to the clergyman's public letter of complaint grew to almost 7,000 words and presented a detailed response to the criticisms of these clergymen. Employing theological and philosophical arguments, as well as reflections on American and world history, King defended the legitimacy of his intervention to desegregate Birmingham. He explained how the nonviolent movement employed peaceful mass protest, even civil disobedience, to bring pressure to bear on the social and political status quo. Given that the immediate audience of his letter were these religious leaders, his letter made numerous references to biblical and historical events and figures that they might find persuasive, and they were certainly conversant with them. King's letter from a Birmingham jail was a plea for a more robust and relevant participation of white churches in the affairs of this world, starting with the just complaints of their black neighbors and fellow Christians. King responded first to the criticism that he was an outsider coming in to stage a civil rights protest in Birmingham where he didn't belong. So let me just mention uh, three responses to that of King's. First, he mentioned that they were invited by a local branch of the Southern Christian Leadership Council, the SCLC. Uh, they were invited by the Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, who was a Birmingham citizen. Second, he says, I'm in Birmingham because injustice is here. And third, he said famously, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Anyone who lives inside the United States can never be considered an outsider anywhere within its bounds. King went on to explain that they actually engage in a four-step process in order to um, put on a nonviolent campaign and in order to prepare for a demonstration. So he says it's actually four steps, not just one. So see if you can discern a difference, for example, between his approach, as I'm going to lay out, and today's approach, say, by Black Lives Matter and others. Number one, he says, we come in and we collect the facts. Is there really injustice on the ground here? So first thing is fact-finding. Secondly, they don't protest. They don't demonstrate. They don't uh, do a mass demonstration. They try the process of negotiation, and they try to do that and elicit good faith by the powers that be. If that fails, then protest? Uh-uh. Step three is what he called self-purification. He wanted the protesters to um, uh, adopt a, a nonviolent mindset. Um, and therefore, interestingly enough, he had them sign what was known as a commitment card, his Ten Commandments, 
to enable them to prepare for a nonviolent demonstration. So let me just mention a few of the things on this uh, commitment card. Uh, number one, meditate daily on the teachings and life of Jesus. And he had explained in other essays, like The Power of Nonviolence in 1957, that you don't have to be a Christian. Uh, you don't even have to be religious to be a part of a nonviolent movement. However, you can learn a lot by looking at the life of Jesus. And so you don't have to be a Christian, but you have to study Christ, if you will. Second, he said, remember always that the nonviolent movement seeks justice and reconciliation, not victory. So in a sense, he says, we need to learn how to, or at least to seek, to turn our enemy into our friend. Third, he said, walk and talk in the manner of love because God is love. King always understood that what they were doing, uh, they were not doing alone. They were doing it, if you will, in concert with God. There's this great line from Theodore Parker that he liked to quote, right? The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And so he said, you don't even have to believe in God, but you have to believe that the universe, that there is some spiritual force out there that is on the side of justice. That would give them hope. Another commandment was, he said, observe with both friend and foe the ordinary rules of courtesy. Make that a habit. Uh, the eighth commandment, and we're going to see that this is a toughie. Refrain from the violence of fist, tongue, and here's the hard one, and heart. Refrain from the violence of fist, tongue, or heart. Basically, you can't have a nonviolent movement without nonviolent individual protesters. He said, if you can't have that mindset, you can support the movement in any number of other ways, but you can't march with us. So that four-step process, find the facts, negotiating good faith, self-purification, now we're ready. The fourth step, direct action. Like a good rhetorician, King acknowledged a serious criticism of his civil disobedience tactic. He understood that, you know what, what about the people who say, you're setting a bad example for those who are actually seeking the protection of the law? Well, how can you say on the one hand, we get to choose what laws to follow, but then when the laws are changed, we insist everybody has to follow the laws? It seems to be a contradiction. How could King justify disobeying laws he believed were unjust and then complain, for example, about the massive resistance uh, by others to laws and court rulings they thought were unjust. And the particular example that I'm thinking of here is the 1954 uh, Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas decision, where in Virginia, they had massive resistance. They just were not going to obey it. So King gives a number of responses, uh, some theological, some philosophical, others more practical. I'm just going to mention uh, two of them. Uh, his response first was, you know, I can urge men to disobey segregation ordinances because they are morally wrong. So you make a moral assessment of them. Secondly, he says, one who breaks an unjust law must do it openly, lovingly, and, here's the key part, with a willingness to accept the penalty. So in that way, you can point attention to or call attention to an unjust law, but not be revolutionary, not say that all laws or the entire government is bad. And so we can break the law in the middle of the day, openly, lovingly, but we have to do it in a way where people recognize we think law is good. That's what we're fighting for, a change in law. Get that law on our side. 
And if they're going to punish us, even though we think it's an immoral law, we will accept the penalty. King also addressed the tension that was mentioned by these clergymen that's stirred up by the protest movement because critics argued that it hindered the struggle for justice. And this is King's response. He said, we who engage in nonviolent direct action, we're not the creators of tension. We merely bring to the surface the hidden tension that is already alive. We bring it out in the open where it can be seen and dealt with. And remember, King, what is, King is doing here is he's saying, look, this is a tension that black people wake up to, live with, and go to bed with that white people may not even be aware of. So what we're going to do, we're going to creatively use tension and say, huh, this tension we're living with, now you got to feel it. And it's only if you feel it that you'll do anything about it. Last King responded to the charge that he was an extremist. Now he admits, he says, you know, when I first heard that, I didn't like that. I don't want to be called an extremist. He saw that, you know, other responses to injustice against black Americans were extreme, like that of the Nation of Islam and Malcolm X, its chief spokesman. They rejected everything about America. That's extreme. King was just trying to get white Americans, as he famously put it, to be true to what you said on paper to live up to their own professions about equality and liberty. And in this respect, King, like the good preacher he was, he's essentially preaching out of the white man's Bible, preaching to the choir out of their own hymnal. A second thought of King's was, he's like, hmm, an extremist? You know what? I don't mind that. I accept that charge. He allied himself then with other examples from history, from world history and American history. And see, why do you, uh, see if you can uh, tell why he used these examples with these clergymen. Number one, of course, he says, was not Jesus an extremist, an extremist for love? Was not the prophet Amos an extremist for justice? Was not St. Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? Was not Martin Luther an extremist, right? Here I stand, I can do no other. And then he turned from the Bible, he turned from ancient history to American history, and he cited Abraham Lincoln and even Thomas Jefferson. And he concluded, the question is not whether we're going to be an extremist, but what kind of extremist do you want to be? Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice, the status quo, or for the extension of justice. In contrast with Malcolm X's black separatism, King offered what he considered, quote, the more excellent way of love and nonviolent protest, end quote, as a means of building an integrated community of blacks and whites in America. He rejected what he called the hatred and despair of the black nationalist, believing that the fate of black Americans was tied up with America's destiny. Despite the enslavement and segregation of blacks through much of American history, King had faith that the sacred heritage, as he called it, of our nation and the eternal will of God could reform white America through his nonviolent civil rights movement. Now, Malcolm X was much more dubious about the white population of America in the years that he served as the chief spokesman for the nation of Islam. It was a black Muslim organization led by a man named Elijah Muhammad. Believing that blacks were God's chosen people, Malcolm X preached that they should separate from whites, which he consistently called devils. 
He was once asked, like, do you really mean whites or devils? And his response was always, what do you want me to call them, saints? They were destined, according to Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam, for divine punishment because of their longstanding oppression of blacks. As X once remarked, you don't integrate with a sinking ship. Malcolm X argued that America was too racist in its institutions and people. He was a systemic racist guy, for sure. He thought this country was systemically racist. He says, too racist to offer hope to blacks. So the solution of the Nation of Islam was a separate nation for blacks to develop themselves apart from what they considered to be a corrupt white nation. Whites had proven they were long on professing and short on practicing their ideals of equality and liberty. And so Malcolm X thought that the only way forward was a separate nation for black people, that only in this way could they provide a basis for self-improvement and advancement as a people. Now let me give you some quick background on Malcolm X. He was actually born Malcolm Little in Omaha, Nebraska in 1925. He was the son of a West Indian mother and black Baptist preacher. His father was actually a local organizer for Marcus Garvey, the head of the United uh, Negro um, Improvement Association. And they promoted, way back in the early uh, uh, 20s, um, black separatism and what was known as uh, Pan-Africanism, a uniting of blacks throughout the globe. Um, Marcus Garvey was the original uh, Black is Beautiful guy and um, the Back to Africa movement. He then moved to Lansing, Michigan, where he suffered the death of his father under suspicious circumstances and several years later saw his mother committed to a mental institution. Malcolm X in elementary school was a top student. He was actually elected class president of uh, seventh grade class. And he told his English teacher that he wanted to become a lawyer. When he said that, the teacher said, and I'm going to be polite here, that's no realistic goal for a Negro. She used the, the other N-word. He, he then soon asked to go live uh, with his half-sister, Ella, in Boston. Took a job as a shoeshine boy, later became a street hustler in New York, and eventually was imprisoned for burglary uh, before his 21st birthday. In prison, Malcolm X read voraciously and was introduced to the teachings of Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam, which I'll just call the nation going forward. Um, paroled in August of 1952, he went to live in Detroit with his uh, older brother, Wilfred. After meeting Elijah Muhammad, he began recruiting converts for the local nation temple and officially adopted X to replace Little as his surname, and it represented his lost African family name. Quickly rose through the ranks of the Nation of Islam temple ministers, and he married Betty X uh, Sanders in January of 1958, and they had four daughters while he was alive and twins after his death. In 1959, Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam really came to national uh, prominence with the airing of a documentary called The Hate That Hate Produced. And it was uh, uh, narrated by Mike Wallace, famous uh, uh, television broadcaster, and a black journalist named Louis Lomax. Uh, subsequent articles in U.S. News and World Report and Time Magazine uh, brought this documentary into even greater prominence. It's just that uh, when you study people who have been harmed and discover the source of their injury, the source of all of their defects, and you begin to point out that source, it's not that you hate the source, but your love for your people is so intense, so, in so great, 
that uh, you must let them know what is wrong with them, what is the cause of their ills. And uh, this is one of the basic factors, I believe, involved when people think or when the propaganda is put out. By 1960, Malcolm X had started or helped start over 100 nation temples, thousands of converts. He founded the Nation of Islam's newspaper, Muhammad Speaks, wrote a syndicated column entitled God's Angry Men. And then he, um, by that point in time, of course, was the chief, uh, chief spokesman for Elijah Muhammad. His popularity, however, soon distanced him from rival ministers at the Chicago headquarters. In addition, Elijah Muhammad's bad health and rumors of his infidelity with Nation of Islam secretaries led to uncertainty about the future leadership of the Nation of Islam. After Kennedy's assassination in November 1963, Elijah Muhammad directed his ministers not to comment on the death of this very popular but white president uh, among black Americans. But after giving a speech entitled God's Judgment of White America on December 4th, 1963, badgered by reporters after the speech, what do you think of Kennedy's assassination? What do you think of the death of this white president? Malcolm X finally said, it was a case of the chickens coming home to roost. Elijah Muhammad promptly silenced Malcolm X for 90 days. Convinced that jealous rivals were undermining his reputation with the ailing Elijah Muhammad, Malcolm X left the Nation of Islam in March of 1964 and announced the formation of Muslim Mosque Incorporated. He left the Nation of Islam at the climax of King's fame as the leader of the modern civil rights movement. During 1963 and 64, King was chosen Time Magazine's Man of the Year. He drew national attention to Bull Connor's barbaric law enforcement. He penned, of course, his letter from a Birmingham jail and delivered his most famous speech, the I Have a Dream speech, at the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom on August 28, 1963. Um, this eventually led with uh, the assassination of Kennedy to the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and King also received the Nobel Peace Prize. It's king, 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 everywhere. To justify an alternative message for black liberation in America, Malcolm X painted a stark contrast between his philosophy and that of the most popular civil rights spokesman of the day. After a pilgrimage to Mecca, in April of 1964, he became a Sunni Muslim and referred to the Nation of Islam as a pseudo-religious philosophy. He returned to uh, America with a new name, El-Hajj Malik El-Shabazz, and formed the Organization of Afro-American Unity. He no longer asserted that white people were devils because he met a lot of white Muslims, who, of course, were not devils, according to him but he was still skeptical of American institutions to secure civil rights of black Americans. And so he argued that the civil rights movement needed to be taken to a more receptive international forum, like the United Nations, like the World Court. He was denounced by his protege, Louis X, whom we now know as, of course, Louis Farrakhan. Um, and Farrakhan said in Muhammad Speaks that a guy like Malcolm X deserved death. X suspected that he was poisoned during a tour of Africa and really thought that his death was imminent. On February 14, 1965, his home was firebombed, and on February 21st, he was shot to death as he began a speech at the Audubon Hall in New York, Harlem, New York. 
For Malcolm X, discussing his legacy is complicated uh, by his departure from the Nation of Islam in March 1964. It was followed by a year of of tremendous self-examination and public exploration. He was thinking out loud, almost on the fly, about alternative approaches to promoting uh, black progress in America. How do you get their civil and political rights? Although he was most famous between 1959 and 63, when he was the spokesman for the Nation of Islam, his controversial exit from this black Muslim organization and his eventual assassination in February of 65 make it difficult to to present a definitive account of what he actually believed after he left the nation. So I'm going to focus just on the ideas and recommendations that X um, proposed while he was most famous and notorious, if you will, as the public face of the Nation of Islam. During his 17-year association with the Nation of Islam, Malcolm X did not consider politics a legitimate activity for blacks in America. He thought that the United States government and state and local governments um, represented the interests of whites exclusively, and this made participation by blacks uh, a waste of time at best and also kind of an aiding and abetting of your uh, oppressor at worst. The so-called Negro, as Elijah Muhammad called black Americans, needed to stay as far away as possible from the white institutions of power. Uh, And these institutions included not just political parties, office and elections, but schools, workplaces, and social venues. According to the nation's uh, religious dogma, the one true God, Allah, destined whites for eminent annihilation. Therefore, the less integrated blacks were with white society, the better. Malcolm X believed that the only way to be free from the cultural hegemony of white America was through the re-education. They really stress this, the re-education of black Americans. The, The basic claim is that black Americans don't know who they are. They don't know what their true identity is. So central to that re-education was the rejection, for example, uh, principally a rejection of traditional Christianity, which most black Americans practiced. Malcolm X read current events in light of Nation of Islam eschatology, end times. With the race problem in the United States as the problem in modern-day America, Malcolm X believed that only God's messenger, Elijah Muhammad, actually knew what the problem was and its solution. Unlike Martin Luther King Jr., who appealed to the conscience and justice of white America, Malcolm X highlighted the long-standing and manifest injustices of white America in trying to persuade black Americans to seek a separate land, a separate nation, large enough to include all 22 million black Americans then residing in the United States. Self-understanding, gaining their true identity for black Americans would only come through their establishing a separate nation unto themselves, forming their own schools, shops, and businesses. So let's recap the key differences between Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. King believed in and sought the beloved community, integration, and equal civil and political rights based on the common brotherhood of man. Malcolm X preached black nationalism, black separatism, a nation of their own, and self-help, the key to progress for blacks in America, definitely not integration or assimilation, which presupposed white superiority. 
King preached God's love, what he called agape love from the Greek. Create opportunities in these demonstrations and protests for God to work, for God to change the hearts of your enemies. X preached God's judgment. White America should be warned of the coming divine wrath if they don't repair the damage they have been doing to black Americans for so long. King's strategy, the means towards these ends, was civil disobedience and nonviolent direct action, employing that four-step process guided by love for one's enemies and reconciliation as the ultimate goal. X, preach self-defense. None of this turn-the-other-cheek stuff. Self-defense against violence that was committed against black Americans. He was non-political while he was part of the Nation of Islam, avoiding participation, being complicit in white American institutions, like voting, which was seen as inherently discriminatory against blacks and basically aiding and abetting your oppressor. Last King promoted civil disobedience with appeals to the conscience of white America to conquer their prejudices, reform their customs and laws, to make them truly equal for all, and as he so famously put it, to be true to what you said on paper. X thought whites were incorrigible white devils and therefore made no appeal to what Lincoln would call the better angels of our nature. Interestingly enough, near the end of each man's life, they began to sound a little bit like the other. King expressing greater discontent and disappointment with white America, pessimistic about their potential for reform and therefore calling for more revolutionary type of uh, action. Malcolm X, now an Orthodox Muslim, no longer called all white people devils. And in 1964, he gave white America one last chance. He said 1964 is going to be the year of the ballot or the bullet. <laughs> 